This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're continuing our series of studies in this letter of the Apostle Paul. This evening we're looking at verses 13 through 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. Hear the word of God. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage, and Lord, particularly as we study it together tonight, we ask that you would open our uh, our minds, our hearts, to receive your word. And Lord, give us clear minds in this late hour of the day to study, to think, to follow the truths that Paul is describing here and speaking of here, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we move from the passage we looked at last week, where Paul describes these, these various contrasts in his own life and ministry, to this paragraph, in many ways it seems almost to uh, be disjointed. So it's not immediately obvious, uh, the apostles' flow of thought. So one of the things that we want to do is, is look and see exactly where he's going with this when he goes from what we looked at last time to this passage and then look particularly at his words here this evening. Uh, we saw last time in verses 7 through 12 that Paul was describing his own ministry and his relationship with the Corinthian believers in terms of these contrasts. On the one hand, weakness being merely an earthen vessel, a clay pot. On the other hand, strength, the strength of the power of God within him, uh, describing uh, afflictions and yet uh, God's protection. And he describes uh, all of that there in verse 8, uh, what he enumerates, actually gives more detail on in other places, the kinds of afflictions, the kinds of um, suffering that he endured for the sake of the gospel. And then uh, the, the largest part of the section having to do with the contrast between death and life. Uh, death, not necessarily literally for Jesus, uh, since Paul in another, in another place could say, I die daily, which should clue us in. He's not speaking of a literal death uh, when, he, when he talks about that, but rather his identification with the suffering and the death of Christ in his daily ministry. But the contrast of that with life. Life that he has in himself because of the power of God, the Holy Spirit living in him, 
and particularly life in those to whom he ministers. And he mentions that in verse 12. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Not, not again by way of irony or even sarcasm as he describes in 1 Corinthians uh, their somewhat triumphalistic view of themselves where Paul says we, we suffer but you all have begun to reign as if Christ has returned. And, uh, but in a rather uh, uh, powerful way that by his dying daily in his ministry to them, uh, God has been pleased to produce life in them. Uh, and far from being a disqualification as an apostle and as their apostle, his suffering is in fact the very source that God used to bring the gospel to them, to cause the gospel to grow in them, that this church was established and that these people have grown in the grace of life. Uh, and that's true, as we discussed last time, of any ministry uh, to anybody. There is an element of dying to oneself, certainly metaphorically, in that, in order to reach others, in order to minister to others, in order to see uh, the seed of the Word of God bear fruit in others. Well, then Paul moves on to verses 13 to 15. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we speak. Well, what's he talking about here? Uh, what is the connection? Well, as we look at these words, I uh, hope that it'll become obvious, but basically he is. Uh, pointing here not so much to the fruit and the evidence of his ministry, but to the motivation that lies behind it. Uh, as he's describing to the Corinthians the ministry that he's had, those things that authenticate him as an apostle, uh, a genuine apostle of Christ. And he basically addresses uh, what we might label as three progressions, uh, moving from one thing to another. Uh, in verse 13, he speaks of faith leading to speaking. In verse 14, he speaks of uh, resurrection inducing boldness. And then finally, in verse 15, of, uh, of grace and the spread of the gospel uh, leading to the glory of God. Well, first of all, and really foundationally for this paragraph, he speaks of faith leading to speaking, faith to speaking. He says, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. Well, what's he referring to there? Written where? Well, he's referring here to Psalm 116. And he takes just this, this little bit of that psalm, and uses it to describe his own spirit. Basically, if we were to paraphrase it, we might say that Paul is saying our spirit, when we came, the faith that leads us to speak is, is pretty much the same as we read in Psalm 116, where he says, I believed and then I spoke. Um, this is verse 10 of Psalm 116. The psalm is, is describing and celebrating deliverance from death, the deliverance, the protection of God. And, and so in verse 10, well, let's look at verse 8, kind of get a running start in Psalm 116. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I've mentioned this before. It would make an interesting study to go through the scriptures and, and find how many times that image of one's feet slipping or stumbling occurs. It, it's throughout the Old Testament, a very common image of the feet Stumbling. In fact, I uh, mentioned that uh, Jonathan Edwards' most well-known sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, 
was based on a text from Deuteronomy, in due time their foot shall slip, speaking of of the wicked. Uh, But he says here, you kept my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Now, the context is celebrating deliverance from death, which, given what Paul has just been writing about, is very appropriate. Remember this morning we talked about uh, the quotations both Jesus and Satan brought up, and that Jesus' quotations were always not merely cited, but cited with a respect to their context. The way Jesus used the verse did not violate the context from which that verse came. Whereas Satan tears a couple of verses out of Psalm 91 and he uses them in a way that not only violates their immediate context, but also uh, violates the plain teaching of another place, the verse that Jesus quotes, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so it reminds us that we need to be very careful about how we use God's word, how we apply a verse, that we are sensitive to the meaning uh, that, that it's found in, to the context in which it's found. Um, it's a, a cultic practice, a practice of the cults, to take a verse and use it in a way that, that violates even the immediate context of the verse without sensitivity to what it's saying in its, in its setting. Well, here it's a curious reading, verse 10, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. Now, Paul quotes that I believed, as it's translated in the ESV, and so I spoke, or therefore I spoke. Paul is quoting not from the Hebrew Old Testament, he's quoting from the Old Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament known as the Septuagint. Uh, By the way, if you're ever reading Bible commentaries or notes or something, you see a capital L, capital X, capital X, Roman numeral 70. That's a shorthand abbreviation for the Septuagint. Uh, It was a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's valuable today because it really is much older than the Hebrew manuscripts we have available for the most part. And so it gives us a picture, if only in a secondhand way through a translation, what the text may have looked like uh, at that time. And that's the Bible that Paul uses and quotes from. It's encouraging uh, that uh, Jesus, Paul, others quoted from a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, that we can quote our English translations, standard translations, as God's authoritative word. But he simply takes that, that, that statement, I believed, therefore I spoke, and in that context of being delivered from death, sees that as, as representing where he was. That the Lord in his ministry has delivered him from death. We looked at that one instance in Derby where he was beaten. You know, they, they, they wanted to sacrifice and worship him in the next verse. They, the Jews have turned people against him and they stone him and leave him outside the city for dead. Um, what leads someone to that kind of, of, of boldness, to that commitment? Well, Paul says it has to do with his faith. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what was written, according to this statement in one, one, Psalm 116, we also believe, and so we also speak. Now, Psalm 116, here, 
Uh, other places in Scripture, uh, faith is the foundation for speaking, for speaking up. Uh, one other instance, uh, just to look at briefly, is one that's well known to you, Romans 10. Where Paul links faith and speaking, verse 9, Romans 10, verse 9. Um, he says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, he proceeds from the more evident to the less evident. We can't see the heart, but we can hear the speaking. Um, but actually, and theologically, uh, it's the heart that proceeds the speaking. We believe in the heart, therefore we profess faith in Christ. But in terms of our experience, we hear the professing and then are aware hopefully, of the condition of the heart. Uh, And he goes on to say, um, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. In our communicants class a little while ago, we were talking uh, about the church, and particularly talking about the distinction that we make between the visible church and the invisible church. Uh, not two churches, but one church viewed from two different vantage points. Some have described the invisible church as the church as God sees it. All of those who ever have, who now or ever will, believe, genuinely believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with saving faith unto salvation. Uh, we could say it's the elect. We could say it's all who are in heaven after Jesus has come back and we're all there in glory. Uh, the visible church is those who profess faith in Christ together with their children. Visible because we know those who profess faith. Uh, in our congregation, certainly our session wants for the visible and invisible to uh, overlap each other as closely as possible, but ultimately we don't see the hearts of those who come to us. We hear the profession, we see the life as much as we know it, that it accords with that profession of faith in Jesus. Um, but the fact is, in the church throughout the world, there will always be some mixture of those who profess faith and yet are not regenerate uh, in the visible church, though not in the invisible. So we talked about that tonight, the necessity of professing faith in Christ, and yet that it's important that it's not merely a profession from the mouth, but the profession that comes from a heart that trusts in and loves and wants to follow the Lord Jesus. But that's the kind of thing Paul is talking about here, that faith leads to his speaking. Faith leads to this verbal boldness. Keep that in mind when you read the book of Acts, that it's it's Paul's faith in Christ. It's his faith in the promises that Christ has made that leads him to have that kind of uh, outspokenness for the gospel. Um, Being cowed into silence, being timid is indication of a weakness of faith. Weakness of faith in the promises of God. Weakness of of faith in the power of the gospel to change another human being. Uh, He kind of puts you in the position of Ananias, you know, when the Lord told him to go to Saul of Tarsus, and Ananias shrinks back and says, Lord, you know what kind of man this is. Um, Sometimes we feel that way. You know, this is an evil person. This is... This person cannot be saved by the gospel. We'd never say that, but our silence betrays that that attitude might lurk in our hearts. Well, that's the first thing that Paul mentions here. Faith 
that leads to speaking, that leads to teaching, that leads to preaching, to telling others. I believed and so I spoke. He says, my spirit is the same, spirit of faith is the same of that that I read about in Psalm 116. The Lord has delivered him from death. He says what he says because it's rooted in his faith. Second progression that he mentions comes up in verse 14. So we also speak, he says at the end of verse 13, knowing... Confident that, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. The doctrine of the resurrection becomes very pressing when you're beaten and left for dead. It becomes a very vital and interesting and relevant doctrine when you're left for dead and You're not so sure you're not about to be dead. Maybe you wished you were dead. I'm sure he was pretty sore after that for a good while. You see, Paul's confidence certainly rested in his faith. It also rested in his his awareness of, his consciousness of the reality of the resurrection. Uh, Verse 14, that he who raised the Lord Jesus. First of all, the resurrection of Jesus. Paul's ministry was rooted in confidence in that resurrection in any number of ways. Uh, certainly being raised to new power with Jesus, our union with Jesus. Uh, but also, as he mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, great Easter Sunday text, that Jesus is but the first fruits. We celebrate Jesus' resurrection. We're confident, every one of us, I think, in this room would say, yes, Jesus was raised. Do you believe you'll be raised? If you do, it makes you more willing to face death. Because it's a temporary condition. You're going to be raised back to life. Do you believe that? Paul did. That's why he was willing to die. Because he knew God would raise him up again. Now, The intermediate state, he also knew his soul would immediately pass into the presence of Jesus, even as his body was laid to rest. Headless, as it turned out, according to the tradition of history. Um, But he also knew that even his physical state, even the, the decay, the burial of his body, was but a temporary condition. Why? Because Jesus was raised. And Jesus is the first fruits. And if Jesus is raised... Paul would be raised, and he knew that. And if Jesus is raised and you are in him, you will be raised. Now, again, the the resurrection of Jesus had implications for Paul's ministry in terms of power. He died with Christ. He's been raised to new life with Christ. talks about that in Romans 3. and talks about it in any number of places. That, uh, That there is a mystical yet real union of the believer with Christ by the Holy Spirit so that Jesus' experience of death, resurrection, is the believer's experience of death, resurrection. Romans 6. We've been raised to newness of life. We've died with him, been raised up. However, the implication of Jesus' resurrection also had to do with Paul's own physical resurrection. That he would be raised up with Jesus knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us, not just me, but us, also with Jesus, and bring us with you into his presence. There's a well-known ascription in a 
much less well-known than, than it ought to be, book of the Bible, Jude. Uh, if I asked you to give me a summary of the contents of Jude, you might be hard-pressed to do it. But if I ask you if you've heard of these words, no doubt you probably have. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. A well-known ascription of praise, often used as a benediction, but an ascription of praise to Christ. But notice what he says. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, there's that metaphor. He didn't mention the feet, but obviously the feet are implied, stumbling, falling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And that image is used again here, or used here in 2 Corinthians that Christ will raise us, the Father will raise us up with Jesus and bring us with you into his, into Jesus' presence. Or as Paul writes in Ephesians, that uh, Christ himself will bring us to himself, a radiant bride, and present us to himself. It's a Trinitarian work. The Father's involved. Obviously, Jesus is involved. But here the image is of the Father bringing the bride, the resurrected bride of Christ, the apostles, the church there, all of them together, and, and presenting them to the bridegroom, to Jesus Why was Paul as bold as he was? Well, he spoke the way he did because he had faith in the gospel, faith in the word of God, faith in the promises of God. He was bold as he was because he knew the worst they could do was kill him. And God was going to reverse that just as he reversed it with Christ. Well, the third verse, verse 15, uh, is is the, the progression of the gospel leading to the glory of God. Verse 15, for it is all for your sake. What is? What's the all? For it is all for your sake. Well, we understand by that all the suffering, all the afflictions, the things that he refers to in verse 8, being afflicted, uh, being perplexed, being persecuted, being struck down. All of that, he says to the Corinthians, is for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to what end? To the glory of God. You see here something of the motivation in Paul's heart. Something of what drove him. I remember reading um, John Piper's book on missions. Let the nations be glad. And I was, I was struck by something he said in that book. Talking about the motivation for missions. Uh, very often we're taught to think in terms of, of people on the other side of the world. Wherever they might be. Who don't know Christ. And we should care about them. And we should have compassion on them. And want them to know the gospel and to share what we have. Now certainly that is a motivation for missions. But how much do you really care about people in Asia or Africa or Indonesia, wherever, Eastern Europe, who don't, or the United States, who don't know Christ? How much does that keep you awake at night? Piper suggested that a more biblical and foundational motivation for mission certainly is is compassion for people, but even more foundational than that is a zeal for the glory of God. And certainly we want these people to be saved, 
But even more than that, we want God to be worshipped. And these people are not worshipping God. But they should be, because our God is a God who should be worshipped by every creature on earth, every person on earth. These people are not worshipping our God. He is worthy of their worship, and therefore we go to them in missions that they might become worshippers of our God, who is worthy of, who deserves their worship. We may not know them. We may not know what they look like. We may not know their names, but we do know our God, and we do want to worship him. He is worthy of our worship and our glory, and he's worthy of theirs too, and so they should be worshiping him. That is, by the way, why John Piper, and I agree with him on this, says that missions is not the prime directive of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. And so the most foundational motivation for missions is the glory of God, that the nations would worship God, certainly that they would share in salvation with us, but ultimately that they would glorify our God who is worthy of their praise. And that's exactly what Paul is getting at here. Verse 15, it's for your sake. All this suffering is for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase Thanksgiving to whom? Thanksgiving to God. Paul says, I want more and more people to experience the grace of God so that more and more people will thank God for this salvation. And therefore, as he says, to the glory of God. Was Paul concerned for those to whom he ministered? Yes. It is worth noting that as Paul himself speaks in places, part of his concern in reaching Gentiles for, the Christ, for, for Christ was to provoke in his own kinsmen, the Jews, jealousy. Paul was indirectly trying to reach the Jews, his, his brothers in the flesh, by reaching the Gentiles with the gospel. But even more than concern for the Gentiles, even more than concern for the Jews, Paul was concerned for the glory of God, that whether Jew or Gentile, they should be worshiping the one true and living God through Christ. And that's what he says here. He, he suffers what he suffers for the sake of these Corinthian believers and others, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Certainly he's delighted their sharing in the blessings of the gospel. But even more than that, and even more than that that motivates him, is for people to thank God, for people to give glory to, to God. And so regardless of what we might think about this people group or that, or these people over here or across the street who don't know Christ, we know what we think about God, or at least should think about God, and we know that they, too, should join us in worshiping the one true and living God. So last time, in those earlier verses, we looked at uh, these contrasts. Well, here Paul really opens up his own heart. The, the motivations that drive him to minister, that make him willing to get up and go back into the city after he'd been left outside the city for dead. He has faith in the gospel, and therefore he speaks and preaches. He has confidence in the resurrection of the dead, knowing the worst they can do is kill him, and God's going to reverse that. He's willing to get up and go back into the city. And he's driven by the desire that all men in all places should bring thanksgiving to the Lord, to the glory of God. If we can fix those three things in our hearts, think what a difference that would make in your life. Think what a difference that would make in this church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for the weakness 
of our faith in it so that we don't speak. Lord, forgive us for the weakness of our faith in the eventual resurrection of our bodies. Lord, we, we confess that, we read of that, we even talk about that, but it seems like something very abstract, very distant, very far away. Lord, forgive us that that's not more of a confident reality motivating us in the way that we live. And Lord, forgive us for what little zeal we have for your glory. But we pray, Father, forgiving us, that you would give us grace to increase our faith in each of these areas, in the power of the gospel, in the reality of the resurrection of Christ and of our own. And Lord, increase our zeal to see you glorified, first in our own lives and then in our neighbors and around the world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.